All right. From what I can tell, and I'm going to read, by the way, guys, welcome to the stream. <laughs> I'm going to read a statement I put on Facebook earlier today because I thought it kind of expressed my thoughts on this complicated issue that I'm not entirely sure what to think about. And I want to explain uh, what this interview is about in a nutshell. So here it is. From what I can tell, there is something of a controversy going on at the moment in New Testament scholarship. There are sincere Christians on both sides of the issue, but the issue is important. And I want to see more discussion of it to that end to get more discussion of it. I am interviewing Dr. Lydia McGrew today, and that is my guest. She's with me already. I'll show her to you guys in just a moment so we can hear her interact with this issue. What's the issue? The issue is the existence of what's called literary devices in ancient Roman biographies, which appear to modernize to allow authors to change details in pretty dramatic ways in some cases, and whether the gospel authors, the authors of our gospels in the New Testament, actually use these literary devices. So from our perspective, it looks like they changed a lot. Mike Lycona is probably the most effective proponent of an affirmative view, and Lydia McGrew has been promoting a negative view, saying the Gospels are rep a reportage model, which I'll have her explain that, and don't involve what she calls fictionalizing literary devices, a term I think we should try to understand. In my opinion, you can be a faithful Christian, and you can hold either view. That doesn't mean, though, that both views are totally cool and okay and true. There are significant implications to consider, even if it doesn't impact the truthfulness of Christianity. I'm not... Uh, personally decided on all these issues. I don't really know exactly where I stand or who I agree with and disagree with on all the on the areas here. So my guest today is going to share her thoughts and her work for you and for me to consider and think about. Uh, but Dr. McGrew's work is like clarifying and thoughtful. And since I don't see her getting nearly as much of a voice online as the pro literary device crowd, there's a lot of voices proponing uh, being proponents for that, but not so much for the other side. So I'm giving her a place to be that voice. Further, and this is the sad elephant in the room part, uh, some people have forgotten that this issue is about scripture and they seem to be treating it as if it's a personal grievance between thinkers on different sides. I think this is unfortunate, unwise, and ultimately unhelpful. To put it bluntly, people like me, which a lot of my audience, you're like me, you don't care so much about personal grievances on either side because you see that as secondary to dealing with the issues at hand about the truthfulness and identifying what's going on in the gospels. And so I care about those people. I don't want anybody to have hurt feelings. I just think that that has no place in this discussion. So here we go. Let me introduce to you my guest, Dr. Lydia McGrew. She is a widely published analytic philosopher, homeschooling mother, author, and the wife of philosopher and apologist Timothy McGrew, who I, I really like your husband, by the way. He's great. <laughs> And uh, she received her PhD in English from Vanderbilt University in 1995. She's published extensively in the theory of knowledge, specializing, which is really difficult actually even to think about in my opinion. So good job there. Specializing in formal epistemology and its application to the evaluation of testimony and to the philosophy of religion. She defends the reliability of the gospels and acts in her books, Hidden in Plain View, Undesigned Coincidences in the coincidences in the gospels and acts and the mirror or the mask liberating the gospels from literary devices that's actually i have it right here somewhere but that's actually the book that prompted this discussion so welcome dr mcgrew thanks for joining me thank you so much for having me mike i'm looking forward to it okay so let's start with like you know the audience who's listening and here's how we're going to do it first we're going to talk about this really simplistically for those who've never heard the concept literary devices you don't know what a literary device is you just want to know, like, here, ease me into this conversation. What is this all about? Then later we're going to go into a lot of details. And uh, Lydia is going to be talking about very specific, like, points in the debate that are worth unpacking. So we're going to deal with that later. If you're a pro on this topic, that's what you're going to want. If you're a noob, you're going to want this beginning portion for sure. So could you walk us, uh, as if I know nothing about the issue, 
explain to me what this stuff is about. So here's the very short version, the very short overview. The theory under consideration, which I am then disagreeing with, is the following. The gospel authors considered themselves licensed by the standards of their time to change various facts, some big, some smaller, some details, in their gospels in invisible ways. This would be somewhat like creating a movie based on true events, like a biopic that you might go to. So that's the theory on the table. I disagree with that theory, and I refute the supposed evidence for that in my book, The Mirror or the Mask, and then in a, a follow-up video series I've had. Uh, I, I address both the claimed external evidence, that is evidence from other sources and the claimed internal evidence which would be like the claims of evidence that we find these in the gospels in alleged discrepancies and differences in the gospels and then i also provide positive evidence that instead the gospel authors were careful and they were truthful and they never changed the facts deliberately even on small matters of detail so my my book has both a negative vector and a positive vector and these work together these are connected with one another so that's the very short overview uh, of of the controversy could you give us just one case in point, like sort of a, an example sure. of one, um, an, an example of a, of a literate, what a literary device would be that you would say, this is something I'm not okay with, or I think is, is inappropriate to ascribe to the Gospels. Or is not there, right, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so here's an example, and I did, um, I'll, I'll just do two, I'll do you a twofer, twofer. So I've just done recently a whole series on my YouTube channel on the temple cleansing. So that, that's kind of a, a good quick example that's easy to understand. And the theory that I'm countering there is that there was only one time that Jesus went in there and he drove out the, the, those who sold doves and the money changers and so forth, that that only happened once. And that that one time was at the end, you know, shortly before he died. And then that the author John in his gospel came along and said, well, I'm going to move that and I'm going to have that be at early in Jesus' ministry, like not all that long after he was baptized or not all that long after the marriage of Cana uh, at the beginning, I'm going to make it happen at the beginning. So this would be actually changing the time, like that John deliberately makes it look like it happened early, even though John knew that it happened late. So that would be an example of one of these comp alleged compositional devices. Uh, I believe that Dr. Lacuna calls that displacement and moving it in time. And so I don't think that John did that. I think that uh, there uh, were two temple cleansings. Uh, there are some people who think that John moved it, but not in the sense of changing the time, but rather in the sense of just narrating it at a different place, but not trying to indicate it was early. I don't think that works as a theory either, but I just think that there were two. So that would be an example. Another example just happens also to come from John. I've been working on a book on John recently. Um, that is claimed is that when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he said, um, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's recorded in what are called the synoptic gospels, which are the synoptic gospels are Matthew and Mark and Luke. And um, then the theory is that he did not recognizably say, I am thirsty or I thirst. Like if you'd been there and you'd spoken the language and so forth, you would not have heard him say anything like that. But that John took it and he uh, kind of did this like 
theological symbol this theological symbolism to make it look like Jesus said, I thirsted. In fact, in John, they even run and get wine for him. So it's, it's made to look realistic, but that it didn't really happen in a way that you would have seen if you had been there. But that in John's mind, this was like a reference to the spiritual state of feeling like he was forsaken by God. It was like this private symbolism that, he, that John had. So that would be another example of an alleged literary device that I think is completely unjustified. Um, it just looks very obvious there was he was hanging on the cross for you know three hours so obviously he could have said both my god why have you forsaken me and i thirst so that would just be two examples just to kind of kick us off okay so if let me try to summarize in my words and i want you to correct this if you feel like any part of it wrong um so the case from guys like dr mike lacona who by the way i i on a personal level i really like Mike. Also, um, now that that's super relevant to the discussion here, but also really appreciative of some of the work he's done. Uh, even in my own debates on the topic of the resurrection, I used much of his work, although I know you have your own work on that topic, um, which is also really valuable. And on this issue, though, I think what uh, what Dr. Lycona is saying, or other guys like Craig Keener, they're, what, okay, what normal Christians hear is, so you're saying the gospel writers just lied about it. And that's really not what they're trying to say. What they're trying to say is, no, no, no. There's like standards for ancient biography. There were accepted conventions. Now, hypothetically, if their case is accurate, there were these mm -hmm. known conventions and conventions like adding information or taking information away to a, to a greater extent than what our modern minds would think is acceptable, that that was normal back then. And altering things like adding, saying, I thirst and that didn't happen, that that was actually expected and okay. And then and they try to build a case from this saying we have Greek sources that do this that tell us they did this and then we have the gospels their greco-roman biography they're of course doing the same types of things so they're not saying it, they're not intending to say that the gospel writers made things up that were untrue what they're intending to say is they did normal biographical reporting which to our eyes looks like maybe they did that but if you understand it in its context you realize no no this is this is normal accepted reporting so it'd be like me saying, man, I, I went fishing and I caught a million fish. Well, that's acceptable exaggeration in our culture. Outside of our culture, somebody might think Mike's a liar. <laughs> and so that would be like the most, I think, a charitable way of presenting their case. Would you say I've explained their case hypothetically accurately? I, I think you have, but there's a lot to unpack, and I, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm glad you I'm glad you stated it that way because I think that raises several different things. So let me make a distinction right at the beginning between the, you gave a good example there that I caught a million fish that would be an example, or we have a thing like I have a frog in my throat. Like if I get thirsty here in our interview, yeah. I'll, I have a frog in my throat. I need to get a drink. Nobody thinks I literally have a frog in my throat. Those are what we would call figures of speech. So somebody who knows the conventions of our speech would like recognize them immediately, right? If somebody heard you say, I caught a million fish, mm -hmm. uh, he would immediately know you like he, he wouldn't need to go like look it up somewhere else or compare it to some other version of the story you told or something. He would know right away that you didn't really catch a million fish and so forth. So those are figures of speech. What they're claiming, although, I mean, they will occasionally make an analogy to a figure of speech, but I think that creates confusion. What they're claiming is something a little different. Uh, and I think the analogy, which, by the way, does come from Dr. Lacona, that I just made of a movie based on true events is a better 
analogy. If you go to a movie based on true events, I don't go to enough movies, but so I used a kind of outdated example in the mirror of the mask. I used the movie Chariots of Fire. And some people know that movie. I, I It's one of my favorites. I've never so watched I know, it. Well, okay. So, all right. <laughs> yeah. So if you went and you watched that movie or uh, Dr. Uh, Lacona will use Apollo 13, which I don't happen to have watched um, or Black Hawk Down, I think is another one he'll use. Um, so it's based on true events. You go to that movie, you see it just by watching that movie you can't tell which parts were changed and which weren't now that's right away a difference from i caught a million fish yeah because just from hearing you say that and knowing the language we and the way that and the size of fish and stuff we know you didn't yeah. really catch a million fish right all right whereas if you go to a movie and it makes it look like something took place in 1924 it's you know you're gonna have to go look it up on wikipedia or something to find out that it didn't really take place in 1924 the movie itself you're not going to be able to tell the difference. And so the idea is that the Gospels were more like that. And so then the reason they don't want to use the word deception is not because, like with I've got a frog in my throat or I caught a million fish, the original audience could tell right away. Like, aha, that part isn't literal. That's a hyperbole. That's an, you know, a figure of speech. Not because they could do that, but just because, as you put it, in a different part of your comment, they were okay with it. Mm-hmm. All right, but but within the work, it's invisible. Yeah. So the audience would be conjecturing just as much as we would be conjecturing about which part was and wasn't literal. Mm-hmm. And of course, there wouldn't be some like Wikipedia article on Jesus crucifixion that you could go look up that would tell you, you know, Jesus didn't really say, I thirst, but in the movie, John, the gospel, he made him say, I thirst, you know, like they wouldn't have any other way of checking it. Yeah. They would be guessed just like we would be. So from their perspective, it would be invisible, but they don't want to call that deception for the same reason that we don't call chariots of fire deception when they make one of the runners he meets his wife in a year when he didn't really meet his wife Mm -hmm. well why is that because we're okay with it yeah but we've got to make a distinction between being okay with it and sort of as we would put it lowering our expectations um so that is really putting information in there that's inaccurate so i mean the, the information that that runner, when he met his wife, as portrayed in the movie, is inaccurate. Mm-hmm. I mean, on a propositional level, it's not accurate information. But the idea is supposed to be that we just manage our expectations as we go in. We go for more for entertainment than for factual content. And we know that if we want to know more, we have to look it up. Now, the problem is that where else are we going to look it up? The Gospels are our original source documents. Mm-hmm. So unfortunately, if they were right, hypothetically, this would place a lot of stuff with a question mark over it. And we would go out into this realm of conjecture where we would say what we would be guessing. And so would the original audience. Yeah. So there, so there may not be a, a, a consistent method of identifying where these where these devices are used or not used. It seems to me, I think the one that, that, and probably will connect with my audience watching for you guys is, uh, when I heard the explanation of the raised bodies at the, at the death and resurrection of Christ as being, um, how Michael Icona put it was a type of special effects. And the suggestion there is, I understand it. And of course, I don't know if he's changed his view on this or what his current thinking is on it. But when I heard him talk about this a couple of times, the statement was that, you know, Jesus dies and, 
according to Matthew, there are these several saints that are raised at the same time as his resurrection, it seems. The tombs broke open, my reading of the text, tombs broke open, they, they came out during his resurrection. And his statement is basically like, yeah, well, that didn't like actually happen the way you're thinking when you read the text. It was special effects because Matthew is, is doing a normal thing, according to Dr. Lycona, that he's emphasizing, you know, the spiritual importance of the event, the magnitude of the death and resurrection of Christ. And I heard that and I thought, okay, that's a lot more than like a paraphrase. That's like a lot more than say, condensing a story. This is something else and something that mm -hmm. seems to me far-fetched. Um, maybe mm -hmm, you can, mm -hmm. is, is that a well, good example of the type of thing that, that you're talking about? Yes and no. It, what's interesting about that one is that in some ways it's less radical. I mean, when you heard it, you were like, whoa, that's more radical than I thought these things were. I, it's kind of interesting. I wrote a blog post about that one because that one became famous. Yeah. And, and because it became such a, a center of controversy. And um, I wanted to almost talk about other stuff in my book, partly because that one was almost too famous. You know what I'm saying? And so like I wrote a whole blog post about that one and then I put a, a footnote in my book and I'm like, yes, let's talk about that, but I don't want everybody to think it's just about that one. Yeah. And here's what I mean by saying that one is less radical. So let me try to explain that. What Dr. Lacona claimed when he originally brought that one up earlier and then his 2017 book had like a lot more in it. Okay, so he brought that one up in his 2010 book. The claim was that that was um, so exaggerated, sort of so over the top, and that in uh, other works of the time, when somebody said something that over the top at the time connected with someone's death, then that that would itself serve as a way that the audience itself would actually pick that event out. That they would go, oh, he's saying all this over-the-top stuff happened when this guy died. Aha, we know that when somebody says that over-the-top stuff happened when some guy died, some famous important person died, we know not to believe that. So an analogy I would be make would to what he was claiming would be if you were listening to an Irishman tell a story and it seemed pretty realistic and suddenly he goes, and then I met a little green man sitting on a toadstool uh, and he had a pot of gold. Okay, A, he's an Irishman, B, he's I'm describing an, I'm an Irishman, what's obvious. By the way. Okay, okay. If you tell me a story and you tell me about a leprechaun, yeah. all right, even if I'm believing you up till you get to the leprechaun, the minute you get to the leprechaun, I'm going to say, ah, okay. So that's going to be like what I would call a tag in the text. Now, I totally disagree with Dr. Lacona about that. I don't think that this was tagged. I don't think that people would have. In fact, Matthew specifically says when the centurion saw the earthquake and the things that were done. He was amazed. And the opening of the graves is rolled in there with the earthquake. It's like this whole list of so-called, you know, over-the-top events. It's just one of them among yeah. them. And the earth, it says that the, the, the centurion saw the earthquake. So that makes it look really realistic. So I disagree with him factually about it. But the nature of his claim was such that it would, at least if he were right, have been possible to pick that one out. The majority, and that's what I mean by it being less radical, because... The ones in his 2017 book, Why Are There Differences in the Gospels, like the two I just gave you and many more, you couldn't even have picked them out like that, even if you knew they didn't look like leprechauns, okay? Yeah. Even the original audience. So he, like, says at one point, John appears deliberate in his attempt 
I'm quoting from memory here, but it's almost exact. John appears deliberate in his attempt to lead his readers to think that the uh, Last Supper was not a Passover meal. Now, I, I disagree with him there. I don't think John's trying to lead you to think that, but that's what he said. And yet, according to him, it was a Passover meal, and I also think it was a Passover meal. So the idea is that John is like really kind of embedding this deeply in realism of his document so that the uh, the audience could not have picked it out at all. And at least with the raising of the saints, he tried to claim that the audience could have picked that one out. And they're, and they're all like this. I mean, I could give you example after example where it's written, and he will tell you it's written in a very, very realistic way so that all the audience could do would be to just sort of, I would say, take everything with a grain of salt. Like, take, if, if you, just like with a biopic, if you know to bring enough salt into the movie theater, as it were, and take enough of these things with grains of salt, you won't be misled because you knew you weren't supposed to take too much of this or more than the very big picture real uh literally and that's how that's how these are okay and now and and to try to give us again like a framing for the, our discussion here you've got you've got then this case that hey greco-roma biographies did these things and they're that's that's a whole part of you know the case they have to build then the mm-hmm. and, the, and the new testament authors were also doing those things okay that's a second mm-hmm. thing mm-hmm. and then the mm-hmm. result is that um, it means this is not de- this isn't deception in, in their case. This is simply normal conventions for writing. Uh, it does leave us in a bit of a conundrum about did that wait did that actually happen or was this part of the storytelling? And it, however, it doesn't leave us completely like oh just throw the, the gospels out or something like that would be overreaction I think. But uh, but it does raise some questions now. Your case is different. You actually have a case for what you call the reportage model. Could you explain briefly what you mean by that? Yeah, so what I mean by the reportage model, I always put it pretty simply in two terms. First, the gospel authors were always trying to get it right, and I mean that in a literal sense. And second, they were very highly successful at getting it right. Okay, so this would mean that they never... uh, deliberately changed anything or made anything up factually. Now, I have various nuances of that that we can elaborate upon more as we talk. So, for example, that doesn't mean that they had a tape recorder and that they verbatim recorded every word that everybody said. So you get these these verbal differences like that God the Father at Jesus' baptism says, uh, you are my beloved son in one of the Gospels, and he says, this is my beloved son in another of the Gospels. Mm-hmm. Trivial, trivial verbal yeah. difference. And, of course, we'll find that all the time in, um, in witnesses, witness reportage. People, memory is naturally paraphrastic. The human memory, naturally, we tend to put things in slightly different words. We get we get close to what the person said. Yeah. Um, so I'm not saying that it's verbatim. Um, and I'm also not saying that everything was always narrated in order. And we can talk more about that, about order of narration. But I have these nuances to that reportage model. But it, it, at a minimum, what it means is that they never deliberately said, hey, that happened this way in this year or whatever. But I'm going to make it happen in a different year. Or I'm going to add 
this detail, like that it was this person's right hand, even though I have absolutely no, no way of knowing whether it was his right hand or his left hand. I'm just going to say it was his right hand. They never did stuff like that. And that's the reportage model. And then I bring uh, positive evidence for that. All right. So from, from where we've, we've kind of laid some groundwork for people to understand our conversation, what do you think we should start with now? Like what would be the best thing for us to tackle next? And we're going to get into well, the weeds, we guys. We're going to go deep on these issues. It's going to be a long interview. But uh, yeah, <laughs> but I thought that it would be um, what people are hungry for because they want some details. Yeah. 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 Well, I've addressed a little bit about paraphrase. I think what I'll do is say a little bit more about paraphrase now. And then maybe what we could talk about is time ordering or chronology, because I think that's an important distinction to make as well. So a little more about paraphrase. First of all, um, the word gets used in a lot of different ways. And um, I just used it in a, in a very natural sort of way. If I overhear somebody say, uh, this is my most athletic son, and uh, then someone else reports it. Maybe he'll report that the father turned to the boy and said, in front of the other people, you're my most athletic son. So um, that's going to be a, a paraphrase, but that's going to be very recognizable. If you were there, you'd recognize that as the same event. Sometimes these scholars will use the word paraphrase in a very different way that I think can be confusing. So um, ima imagine the uh, story where Jesus says, your sins are forgiven you to the man uh, who was paralyzed, okay? Mm -hmm. He's claiming to be God implicitly, right? Jesus is, because he's saying he has the power to forgive sins. Um, so that's claiming to be God and they say it's blasphemy. Now, a paraphrase of that would be all of your sins are forgiven you or your sins, which are many, are forgiven you or whatever, you know, that kind of thing. OK, somewhat different wording. That would be a paraphrase of what Jesus said in that incident. But now imagine that John was sort of, shall we say, inspired by that incident. And he went over and he constructed an incident that did not recognizably occur where Jesus is speaking to the crowd in a different city. All right. The thing about uh, sins, that's in probably Capernaum. Yeah. And uh, let's imagine this other scene in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, I and the father are one. OK, and then they they get angry and they take up stones to stone him. Mm -hmm. And let's say John knew that that incident did not recognizably happen at any time in Jesus life. But he said, I'm being true to Jesus' message because Jesus' message, I'm being faithful to his meaning because his meaning and his message was that he was God. Now, I'm sorry, but that's not paraphrase. Yeah, and they'll, and and the they'll actually use the term paraphrase to describe that kind of thing. Uh, Jesus over I'm here says, so. your sins are forgiven. And I know the passage well. I've taught it not long ago. <laughs> and then mm -hmm. and then they say, like, you know, who can forgive sins but God alone and all this. Yeah. But then John from that is inspired to, to say Jesus just basically said he was God, you know, or, or I'm one with the father, a phrase that has different meaning. It has genuine, very different meaning than the first. It, it does. And then the claim is that this is like a paraphrase because it's true to the meaning of the, the claim to be God, the underlying message or something like that. So when you hear a phrase like it was true to the meaning or it was faithful to the meaning. I mean, I'm sorry to have to suggest being a little more pushy, but sometimes you do have to be pushy and say, but okay, but but did this happen in a recognizable way? And then maybe you'll get a discussion of, well, Jesus might have been speaking Aramaic 
So John had to translate it from Aramaic into Greek if he wrote his gospel. Yeah, 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 fine. You know, that's not what we're talking about. If you'd been there and he was speaking Aramaic, he spoke Aramaic, you would have been able to recognize that this was that scene. That's Mm -hmm. not the same thing as inventing a scene. So that's not paraphrase. So I I get that this is challenging because it's kind of a question of like, okay, how much do you stretch uh, a familiar idea to us, like paraphrase, and apply it to something that seems pretty unfamiliar in that for that terminology? And again, it's going to come down to, well, that was what they did, and you need to learn their practices back in the first century. We'll talk more about that as, you know, as, as sure, we continue. Sure, sure. Uh, yeah. But we need to be clear to one another, right? I mean, when we're talking, even if you want to say, well, I think it was okay for John to make up that scene, okay, but if you're talking to a modern audience, you should tell the modern audience in clear clear. English words, because you're speaking English, mm-hmm. what John did, yeah. instead of calling it paraphrase, which could confuse your modern audience as to what you're actually, you know, what you actually have in mind, what you're actually describing. So, um, and I agree that there is this question of, of degree. Uh, philosophers, we sometimes talk about something we call a beard problem. And Mike, you have a beard. I'm sure when you were growing your problem. beard, <laughs> it, it, it didn't grow overnight, right? Didn't grow no. overnight. No, it took, and there it took was three an days. Oh, man, that is pretty fast. But anyway, there was an in-between time in there, right? You know, so people people will say, you know, and, and this literally, I mean, it's known as a beard problem in, in philosophy. We call it that. We also call it a sorites. A sorites is a heap. Yeah. Okay, so you have one grain of sand, two grain of sand. When does it become a heap? Yeah. You've got a guy with a five o'clock shadow, and it gets longer and longer. When does it become a beard? Yeah. And unfortunately, there, there can be a tendency to say that because there are fuzzy cases here in between, then there are no clear cases now that's a fallacy Mm. that's a false you know and and i mean it's the same thing with you know if you've got your your child and you say you have to go to bed without dessert that's not starving your child to death if you say to your child that you have to go to bed without dinner well that's a little more radical if you tell your child you can't have anything to eat for three days now we're over into child abuse territory so just because there are in between cases that doesn't mean there are no clear-cut cases same way with paraphrase just because there are looser and and closer paraphrases that doesn't mean there there are no things that clearly yeah that's a paraphrase and other things that clearly no that's not what we would how we would use that word and it's going to confuse us if we call it that Great. And I, I think that actually this is one of the problems I've had as I've, and, and there's a lot of stuff in all honesty that Mike Lacona has been saying, uh, he's the guy I've been hearing most of this from. And I go, I agree there. I agree there. I agree there. But then I feel like it's being applied to things I don't agree on. Right. I feel like there's a lot of maybe stretching. That's how it, my sense of it is. There's a lot of stretching going on. So I go, yeah, well, that's a great example of, of differences and not being a big deal. Yeah, this was acceptable. I accept it. <laughs> and then there's then that's sort of applied to examples that I go, wait a minute, like the John example you just gave where I go, that seems like a whole different kind of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It does. And I do want to say, for clarity and charity's sake, uh, Dr. Lacona has not absolutely committed himself to saying that John did that concerning I and the Father are one. Mm-hmm. What he has said is, um, and that it was a position that was taken by Dr. Craig Evans in a debate in 2012 with Bart Ehrman, and then in a recent interview, I believe two and a half years ago, that Dr. Lacona did on uh, Tim Stratton's Free Thinking Ministries podcast, uh, he said, well, if a gun were put to my head, I would I would say that. I would take this, what it's called a broad ipsissima vox view. Ipsissima vox means the very voice, and broad is like what I was just talking about. And so it's like he hasn't quite 
said, you know, he definitely thinks that. Sure. But that is, shall we say, the position in question or the issue yeah. or the statement in and question on that. Help, yeah, they help people like me, you know, who to go, oh, that's what you mean. Okay, so you're meaning a much more flexible, to put it mildly, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. you know, version of reporting the information or doing a biography than, than what I would, would normally expect if I'm reading the text. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. and it does... It's not the same as saying the Gospels are wrong. It's not that. It's saying the Gospels are doing something different than you think. Um, the question is, are they really doing it? Are they really doing that? Because if they're, here, let me just say this, if, if they're not, if, yeah. if, these, if these literary devices aren't actually as, as firmly factual or real as, mm. as they're saying it is, and the Gospel authors themselves aren't actually tapping into those devices, then the end result is we're saying things didn't happen, which did and which the Bible is saying did happen. And so there are consequences to that. Yeah. Right. And actually, I would say there are consequences, even if they're right about the literary devices, mm -hmm. because think of, if you think about it for a minute, um, Dr. Lacona says these were part and parcel of the genre. And when you start looking at all of the ones that are conjectured, it's like, it, what if you really thought the gospels were like biopics? Well, how much information do you try to get from biopics? You know, we're pretty limited in how much information we can get from biopics. Mm -hmm. And this is where I would go to talking if, if you say the information was wrong. There's a sense in which the information that's in a biopic may just may just be wrong. I mean, it's incorrect. It's not necessarily moral. I'm not saying it's morally wrong for the director to do that, but it really does limit the amount of information we can derive from it. So uh, they'll, the, the theorists will make what I call, I call these utterly unforced errors. And what I mean by that is that they'll just put a question mark over something, even when um, there is no apparent discrepancy. Okay, now the uh, I Thirst one is actually a pretty good example there because there isn't some apparent discrepancy. It's not like the other Gospels say he didn't say I Thirst or something like that. There's no conflict there. And it, it's astonishing when you look at it, the number of places that this question mark will be put in. So in a recent video, one of his response videos to me, uh, Dr. Lacona was talking about Jesus' dialogue with Pilate. And he got to the part where Jesus says, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And he said, now, maybe John thought this was a good place to remind his readers of the saying, my sheep hear my voice. And so maybe he had Jesus say, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice as a kind of a callback, as we would say to uh, my sheep hear my voice. In other words, you know, he, he made it up. He inserted Jesus did not recognizably say that. And then he, then he said, now, I'm not saying definitely that he did that. It's impossible for historians to know. Okay, and that many times in Why Are There Differences, the phrase impossible to know, impossible to tell, we cannot tell. He uses the word um, informed guesswork at one point, the phrase informed guesswork. So what happened, and again, this would have been true of the original, the, the original audience did not have a decoder ring. Okay, nobody, and nobody's offering us a decoder ring either. All right, just as we would be if we went to a, um, if we went to a biopic. So because of the number of times this is coming up, it actually would involve placing question marks over a pretty high proportion of the information that appears to be found in the Gospels. So like I would say the implications, if they are right, are pretty major. 
And, yeah. and the implications, if they are wrong, are actually, in a sense, better, because then we can just go back to taking it at face value. Yeah, and I'm probably uh, stepping outside of my actual knowledge of things when I make a hasty prediction here. But here's, my thought is this, is that in the historical Jesus studies, when, when scholars start feeling like they can sort of reconstruct without really clear reasons to reconstruct the historical Jesus, um, they end up making a Jesus of their preferences, right? It ends up resulting in all these different images of Christ from these different historical Jesus scholars, whereas really the image of Jesus we should see is the one in the New Testament. This is this is just only one Jesus, right? And this is him. My fear is the same thing will happen with this literary device thing, is that we'll end up having uh, an, a bunch of mutually exclusive versions of what the real story is because we're sort of subjectively saying, I'm going to call that literary device, but that is historical and then over here that's literary device again and since i don't have a clear indicator in the text of when it's a literary device i think the tendency is going to be to sort of go off of my preferences and so uh, well i find that far-fetched so that's literary device i find that believable so that's that's actually that actually happened and I, I my concern here is that you won't get a cohesive that you know 10 20 years from now and a bunch of people are focusing on this which they probably will we're going to find a, a bunch of varying and contradicting reconstructions of what supposedly really happened. Well, and you can, you can see that even in a given claimed literary device. So uh, take that one I just happened to bring up about everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Obviously, either Jesus said it or he didn't. I mean, he was speaking in, I don't know what he and Pilate were speaking, you know, probably mm. Greek or Latin. But anyway, I'm not saying he said it in English, but the point is either he said something recognizably like that to Pilate or he didn't. Those are not compatible. Right. Yeah, yeah. So right away, the person who says Jesus said that, uh, and I think, you know, John had a, some kind of source or whatever that told him Jesus said that somebody who was present and he reports that accurately is not agreeing with the person who says Jesus didn't say that. Right. So right away, even if we don't have a strong preference one way or another, we definitely have incompatible views there because either he did or he didn't. The other thing that I think is going to happen, um, and I forget if I coined this phrase or if my husband Tim coined this phrase, but the phrase is the redactive fog. And I really like that phrase that this fog descends over Jesus. And you know how in a fog you can sometimes see the, the outlines, like you know if it's an SUV coming toward you as opposed to, you know, a little Toyota or something. So maybe some of those big outlines of Jesus will still be visible in the fog, but we're going to lose you know, we're going to lose a lot of stuff about Jesus. And I think pastors find this important. This was a, a point that my uh, friend uh, Tom Gilson has made. And he has said to uh, Dr. Lacona, you need to help pastors because there are pastors out there preaching that Jesus really said, I thirst. And, and they're drawing conclusions from the fact that Jesus said, I thirst, like it, it, it's evidence of his humanity uh, or that he of his suffering and so forth. And even these things that maybe you don't think are a big deal, but pastors need to know whether to preach about them or not. OK, imagine getting up on Sunday and having to ask yourself over and over again, well, I don't know if I should preach about that because I'm not sure that really happened, even though there's no apparent contradiction and the text seems to be asserting it in a pretty straightforward way. It would make a big difference to our Christian practice, I think. Hmm. 
Well, <clears throat> how about we talk maybe about some more of the examples. Uh, you mentioned paraphrasing and the stretching of the terminology beyond what we would expect. Mm -hmm. And then what about like uh, chronological issues? You mentioned you wanted to talk about that. So there, I know you, you mentioned yeah. in your book, a chronology versus dyschronology. And mm -hmm. I thought that was a valuable um, distinction. And you make a lot of valuable distinctions for those who are interested uh, in Dr. McGrew's book. She makes all kinds of careful distinctions, even towards the beginning of the book that I find are, are helpful. Um, now, yeah, anyway, we'll let you get into that. Let's talk about chronology, yeah. Yeah, chronology. So um, sometimes you'll see a sort of caricature of something like a reportage model or a more conservative model of the Gospels that everything has to be narrated in order. But we, we do find the Gospel authors don't always narrate things in the same order. So if you take Jesus' uh, temptations in the wilderness, you know, so one one author will narrate, you know, the the thing on the roof of the temple in a different order from turning the stones into bread or something like that. You know, there's these different temptations in the wilderness. Um, and Luke and Matthew, I believe it is, narrate them in different orders. Well, obviously, um, that wouldn't be compatible. That would be a discrepancy if we took them to be saying this happened number one, then this happened number two, etc. right? To be giving an order, then their orders would conflict. And um, so Dr. Craig Blomberg has talked about the Greek words that are used there. And that these, there are these Greek words that just mean approximately what we would mean by like and or but or something like that. They don't mean next or first. They don't indicate, have to indicate an ordering. So if I said yesterday, I went to the store and I prepared some material for my talk with Mike, I am, I may not be intending to say that I did it in that order. Yeah. So when the author doesn't intend to indicate an order or to indicate a length of time, like suppose I summarized some things I did and I didn't tell you that they took two different days, but I just didn't say one way or another. Maybe I'm not trying to say that it all happened in one day. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's what I call a chronological. And this resides in the intention of the author that the author doesn't intend to be saying that they happened in that order or in a certain period of time. Dyschronological narration is when the author knows what order or length of time it took, but he deliberately changes it. So like the temple cleansing example I gave you. So I um, was talking about the theory that John, like he knew it took place in Passion Week, but he moved it to shortly after the marriage at Cana early. That would be dyschronological narration if it happened. Mm -hmm. So when I say that I'm opposed to uh, fact-changing compositional devices in the Gospels, I don't think they used them, I am talking about, with chronology, dyschronological narration. A chronological narration, somebody might call that a literary device. Like, for example, suppose Luke grouped all of a bunch of Jesus' ta uh, teachings about prayer. He has a place where he has, and he's just like, he said, he said, he said, right? You could call that a literary device if you wanted to, because he's trying to group it. But if it's a chronological narration, he's not really changing the facts about chronology because he's not telling you a chronology. Mm -hmm. He's not even trying to imply a chronology. So um, that's really important if we're to understand where that burden of proof lies, because I would say there's a heavier burden of proof when you say that an author has engaged in dyschronological narration. 
if you're just saying he just kind of narrated these things as he thought of them or something and he wasn't telling you which one happened first which one happened second that's such a common thing that there's not a very heavy burden of proof but if we're going to say no he had this motive and he had this symbolism he wanted to give or whatever Mm -hmm. and he was moving it to a different time then we need more evidence um and i would say we we need uh quite a lot more evidence than what the theorists usually bring so i think that's a really important distinction um, maybe another distinction we could talk about is uh, that you mentioned um, the difference between, and you mentioned it already, but we can target it right now. Um, literary devices, v- which some of which you would agree with, but you, I don't think you would call them literary devices. You would say, these are things we've always been talking about. Why are we calling them literary devices? But then also what you call fictionalizing literary devices. Help us understand that distinction, if you would. Yeah, so um, we gave an example earlier, like I bought, I caught a thousand fish, or I caught a million fish, or something like that. So uh, figures of speech. So there's a place in uh, one of the Gospels, I think it's John, where it says, "Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him." Okay. Now anybody conversant with the times would know that the governor is not going to like personally scourge this guy. So that would be similar to saying in our own time. Uh, if, if I said, I'm building a house. Now, if you know me, you know I'm, I'm not even five feet tall. I weigh under 100 pounds. I am not personally building a house. If I say I'm building a house, that means that I'm uh, paying a contractor. You know, I've bought the... I bought the property and whatever. Okay, so that would be, you might call that a compositional or literary device. That's a figure of speech that's immediately recognized. so what I talk about instead when I talk about fact changing, and sometimes people get a little triggered with the world, word fictionalizing. So if you prefer fact changing, but where there it's like this is the way it was, but this is the way I'm going to make it be. Mm-hmm. So when we start saying the author is making it happen this way in his story, even though it happened this different way then that's what I call fact changing. And that's where I have a question about it. And I want to say, okay, what's your evidence that the author did that? And um, one interesting point that I often emphasize is that mere difference hunting is not enough as evidence. So merely saying, well, in this gospel, it says that Jesus said, I thirst. And in this gospel, it says that he said, you know, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, it's a mere difference. That's not going to be enough to show fact changing. And I would go further. I would say mere discrepancy hunting or apparent discrepancy hunting is also not enough to show that one author changed the facts. Um, Because even if you find an apparent discrepancy, you still have to ask, well, is there some plausible explanation of this? Uh, I would also go to the the secular documents, and we can uh, talk about those uh, when you're interested. Plutarch, for example, sure. I let find. Me, let that, me just preface for yeah. the audience. No, the, no, go the, ahead. Yeah. The reason why the, these documents are important is because the the case that um, the literary device group is making is t- to say, if I understand it right, <clears throat> and I'll mention this again because again, if this is the first time you heard this, it doesn't hurt to hear it twice. That uh, that there were these these textbooks that the that Greek learners, people who are learning to write Greek stuff, like for instance, history or poetry, that they were learning from these textbooks. And these textbooks actually taught them to use these literary devices that to our eyes would greatly alter the information. And 
in a, then in addition to that, okay, that's that's the textbooks. Then in addition to that, Plutarch is seen as probably the prime example of someone who does it in action. And so Plutarch wrote a bunch of different biographies. They're called Lives. And you can take the same story he tells in different biographies, and Mike Leikoner does this in his book, and compare them. And he says, look at how the stories are different. This proves that these literary devices were not only taught in the textbooks, but they were actually used in real life. And Plutarch is the biographer of ancient Rome. So um, so yeah, I think that that's the basic case to say, look, see, it's a real thing. And the gospels are doing that too. Um, now, if you right. would go ahead and delve into that no, topic. No, go ahead. So, so, you know, take, take, for example, the fact that in one of Plutarch's lives, um, he's talking about, uh, Caesar and Caesar weeping and saying that at, you know, at his age, Alexander the Great had conquered the world or something. And Alexander the Great had done much more. And that, you know, he feels he hasn't, you know, done enough at this time in his life. So Plutarch uh, seems to be placing this at a certain trip to Spain. Now, he just introduces it as when he was in Spain. But it's plausible when you read it in its context, you know, that he has a, a certain trip to Spain in mind. And then you go to other other authors, not Plutarch, and they tell approximately the same incident, but they say it happened in a time of a different trip to Spain, that Caesar took a different trip to Spain, and they're like seven years apart. And um, so then the claim is, see, this is uh, displacement, all right? So then this is supposed to mean that it, we see in action, it was acceptable to move things. Well, now notice what's happened there. What we've done is we've done what I call discrepancy hunting. We found an apparent discrepancy between Plutarch and this other, these other authors, which trip to Spain was it when Caesar was bewailing that he hadn't accomplished as much as Alexander the Great? Um, and we've said, boom, you know, that's a literary device. Like, Plutarch moved it. What if we skipped over? Well, I mean, nobody's committed to saying that Plutarch never made any mistakes, right? I mean, Plutarch is just a secular author. And let's also remember that this stuff is found in scrolls, okay? I mean, you don't have it in like a searchable form. You know, you can't just call it up. Plutarch couldn't just call it up on his computer and like, you know, Alexander the Great trip to Spain, you know, and find it and, and make sure, you know, and check it. It's not easy at all. If he's going by memory of reading these other sources, he could very easily remember it was on a trip to Spain and just narrate it at a trip to Spain that was the wrong trip to Spain. Okay, so discrepancy hunting gets used in these secular sources to quote unquote find literary changes that are um, that were, were neglecting more ordinary potential sources of uh, of difference. Okay, um, and sometimes it's even a mere difference hunting. So I'd, I'd like to give an example here again from Plutarch. Um, in one of Plutarch's lives, uh, Plutarch is talking about a debate in the in the Senate. Uh, Caesar is not getting along at all with the Senate. So, you know, Julius Caesar, he's out there and they want him to give up his legions and he doesn't want to give up his legions and so forth. And so in uh, one life, at, at the, because I would be risking getting the name wrong, I'm just going to say Senator A. So in one of Plutarch's lives, Senator A calls Caesar a robber, okay? And uh, Senator, you know, B 
B says that he should be considered a public enemy if he doesn't give up his allegiance by a certain day. And then in another life, Senator C is reported to be saying that that Caesar is a, a robber and that he should be con and supporting the measure that he should be considered a public enemy. So Christopher Pelling is an Oxford classicist. I believe he's retired now and uh, a, a sort of person that Dr. Lacona is, he has been following in his work. And Pelling suggests and uh, Dr. Lacona agrees that Plutarch has conflated these sayings, put them together and transferred them to Senator C. Okay. Now, not there's not even a motive. It's just like, it's just a difference. Maybe he, we think he did that. Mm -hmm. He moved, and that it. that was an that and, was a uh, an example of an accepted literary device, right. transferal, transferal literary device from which two they individuals call to one individual, and from and to a, an individual which isn't even either of them. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like this is completely different, separate person, right? Um, and so then, in uh, in in one of his suggestions, Dr. Lacona suggests that. Uh, in Mark, it says the voice of one crying in the wilderness, and that's the that's the narrator. And in John, John the Baptist says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And he just suggests that maybe John the evangelist transferred. So there's transferal, transferred these words instead of, and it's not even from one character to another. It's from like the narrator in Mark to John the Baptist, the character, even though it, you know, that it didn't occur historically. And there's, and that's just a difference. I mean, and there's then, no contradiction. For that example in Mark and John, what's your opinion of what the difference is causing that difference? It just isn't reported in Mark. I mean, it's literally, there's no, like, mm. the narrator doesn't say the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And by the way, John the Baptist never said this about himself. There, It's just... That yeah. whole scene in John literally doesn't even occur. John yeah. the Baptist calls himself the voice of one crying in the wilderness in a dialogue with some messengers who were sent to ask him who he was. That dialogue doesn't even occur in John. I mean, by doesn't occur in Mark. I'm in Mark, yeah. sorry. That it, it's not even reported. Yeah. So it's not like it's not like there's even an apparent discrepancy. It's just that's a part of the story Mark just doesn't tell. To me, that's a and that's all a there very, is to it. A natural reading of the two texts is is that yeah, one one thing uh it's not that what john's doing is coming from mark and then john's changing and transferring the, the content to someone's lips who didn't say it instead it's more like they're both coming from actual historical events and they're accounting <laughs> accounting them differently because they're both writing separately so right we we know that there's tons of stuff that jesus did that isn't reported yeah. i mean john says that the books could not even contain all of the things yeah we know that john reports a far more extensive uh, amount of material about jesus early ministry than the than the synoptics report are we going to call all of that into question now in particular you know, about john he he just it, gives a lot of detail about john the baptist yeah yeah so you know that's that there it's like hardly even requires much of, a, of an explanation so i would call this difference hunting to go back to the plutarch example do we not find nowadays in our political climate and i do not mean this to be a political comment but that people repeat 
the same things or similar things when they agree with one another. Mm -hmm. Of course. I mean, we're going to find different senators saying the same thing about a Supreme Court nominee that they don't agree with or whatever. And if more than one senator says it, that doesn't mean that somebody transferred it from one senator to another. That's how political bodies work. So there's really no problem with saying that all of these things that Plutarch said in both of his lives are true. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just look at the comment section on my videos. You'll see even this one, give it a, give it a week and then look down and we'll see different people saying the same types of things because that's just the way life is. Um, now, could we, uh, and tell me if I'm jumping off Plutarch too quick or we can come back to it, but I wanted to ask you about the, the textbooks. So one of the things that got my attention was while I'm initially somewhat skeptical about the 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 far end of the use of literary devices, and I go, well, the, the initial examples, I go, oh, that seems legit, you know, but how far it's stretched um, seems to be a problem for me. But the case for it involves saying, look, here's what you don't know about history, which I'm always interested to find out, right? Here's Greco-Roman, uh, you know, source books where they're using these to teach kids how to read and write Greek, including history, and they give practices where they actually require them to change details and do these literary devices. What would your, am I explaining that right? And what would your response to that be? Sure. Excellent, excellent question. So I've got several different parts and I'll like pause at each part and I'll ask if you, you know, want to ask me anything further about that part. So first um, challenge is whether the gospel authors would have even been educated from these. The second challenge is whether the textbooks actually contain these. So those are, are yeah. various questions. And I was going to save the whether, second, the first question yeah. for a second, but I was curious if you thought the textbooks are legitimately contained these. Now, I read in right. Chapter 1 in Dr. Lycona's book, um, it, it seemed sparse, the data there, um, supporting mm-hmm. this. It just was like a quote here and there, and I thought, I thought there was going to be, I'm just being honest, I thought there was going to be more meat behind this. Is there a stronger right. case right. I'm not being exposed to? Um, so I'm probably should no, be asking it's, him it's, this question. Yeah, <laughs> but, you go for it. Go for it. And you know, here here is actually, you know what I would encourage you to do if you haven't had time, and I would encourage the viewers to do this too. Look at Dr. Lacona's and my video series. And I have, by the we way, both, I have those linked below in the in the in the yes. video description on this video. I have a whole playlist of Dr. Lacona responding directly to Dr. McGrew, and then her playlist responding to his. So you guys can have all the info there. Have a ball because in in one of those he has supposedly more quotations from the textbooks that are supposed to show it even more and um, and then I respond to that but one of the surprising things to me about that is that if you you know if I could put it this way you just sort of turn off the sound and you don't listen to someone reading this in this very highly significant voice and you just say what does that quotation actually say yeah. um, it's astonishing that the quotation doesn't actually say hey, it's okay to change historical facts. In fact, you can go through, I have read all of all of this book by Theon was his name, who wrote one of these that was in, used in the first century. Um, you can read the whole thing and you will literally not find a single place where Theon says, it is allowable, you know, like in so many words, it is allowable when you are writing history to uh, move events around and to change things and to, um, you know, and to change things and then to make it look realistic and your reader will accept that because it's it's just, uh, 
you know, something that your reader expects you to do or say. He doesn't say he doesn't say that anywhere. Yeah. Okay. These quotations are things like these things are very useful for this these exercises are very useful for historians. Okay. Useful in what sense? You know? It or just, um, it seemed and I'm I'm just gonna agree with you here. It seemed to me that the quotes fell short of establishing the case that these textbooks were being used in such a clear manner to teach right. practices think, that others were adopting in other contexts, yeah. Absolutely, and I think you'll find that with the additional, he adds a few additional quotations. That's why I suggested okay. watching, even watching video, he adds a few additional quotations that he thinks are like knockdown, and you go read those and they're similar. You know, they're things like, history is a series of narratives. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh-huh. right, you know, these kinds of things. So, yeah, um, but here's, I, I wanna read a quotation here from Dr. Lacona's Why Are There Differences in the Gospels? Okay. I think a lot of people don't realize this. Um, So he says, there are many observations of differences in the pericopes, pericope is a section, in the Gospels, he's saying, that follow, for which potential devices are neither described in the compositional textbooks nor observed being employed by Plutarch. So I want to stop. What's he saying? He's saying he is admitting that he's attributing compositional devices to the Gospels that he doesn't even claim that he found in the textbooks or in Plutarch. Yeah. That's interesting. Let's continue. We will keep in mind that many of the compositional devices in use by Plutarch are likewise not found in the compositional textbooks, nor are they taught in any of the ancient literature that has survived. That's quite an admission. So he's saying that even Plutarch, he even when he alleges that Plutarch is doing things, He's alleging Plutarch is doing things that he doesn't even claim to have found taught mm-hmm. anywhere. And this is, again, my concern is that it just gets, I feel like it just keeps getting stretched further and further and further right. to, um, okay. yeah. And then he says, accordingly, much of what an ancient author did and why he did it will remain in the realm of informed guesswork for modern historians. So there's that phrase, informed guesswork. It's astonishing. And I call it a ratchet. If you ever work with a tool that's a ratchet, you, you, you ratchet something here, and then that's a fixed point, right? And then you ratchet it again and you move it more right so what we're doing is we're interpreting these textbooks in a certain way and i i have even more to say about that interpreting them in a way that i think is very mistaken to begin with that causes us to sort of ratchet up our belief that the uh this was acceptable then we go to plutarch and we add even more devices that like displacement that one i just talked about you know or making a person say something you moved it from someone else's mouth. That's not supposedly even supposedly found in the textbook. Displacement isn't even supposedly found in the textbook. Mm-hmm. So we ratchet that up. We add those in because we claim we've found them in Plutarch. We mm-hmm. went to Plutarch more or less expecting to find something. And so then when we, whenever we find a discrepancy or a difference in Plutarch, we say, ah, let's add another literary device to our little catalog, our list here. So now we've moved the ratchet another thing. Then we go to the Gospels. Now we've got an even higher idea of expectation. Aha, we're going to find stuff. And now every place we find in the Gospels that um, something is different or that there's an alleged discrepancy, it's like, and it gets to the point where, where Dr. Lacona just uses the phrase literary artistry. It's just the, like it's like a grab bag term. You know, it doesn't even have any more specific term. It's just they change this by literary artistry. It doesn't even, it's not even on a list. 
you know. So we're ratcheting it up more and more you know, each time. I'd, I'd like to say a little more about the misread, what I consider to be the misreading of the, um, of the textbooks, because okay. I think that's, it's kind of important. So um, I want to talk about inflection a little bit here. Um, there was, it, so Greek is an inflected language, and you know what that means. Explain a little bit more for the viewers, um, where you would change the endings of words. Many, many languages are inflected, like you would change singular to plural, and we have singular and plural in English, of course, as well. Um, our adjectives don't tend to be inflected in a fully inflected language. You know, the adjectives have to agree with the nouns in number and all that kind of thing. And then the verbs will change in number, and there are all these different endings. So Greek is an inflected language. Um, classical Greek actually had three numbers. It had the singular, which is one. It had the dual, which is exactly two, like twins. And it had the plural, so it's like one, two, and more, and then three and more, okay? So um, Plutarch, uh, excuse me, I misspoke, Theon, the author of this textbook. Yeah, and just for the audience, Theon, so uh, Dr. Lycona in his book, he gives, he re references multiple different textbooks, but only one dates back to the first century, um, and that's Theon, if I if my memory serves, that's Theon. That comes back to the first century, and so it probably has the most you know, potential for applying to the stuff we're reading about Perfect. in the Gospels. Right, and the others are very similar. I mean, they use, you know, they have similar rhetorical things they're teaching and so forth. So Theon has these exercises about inflection, where you would have the boys uh, and the students change the number of the, of the nouns. So I want to give an example here. Isocrates, the orator, said that those with natural ability are the children of the gods, we inflect it as one person speaking of one other by saying, Isocrates, the orator, said that the student with natural ability was a child of gods, and as two of two, that the twin orators, Isocrates, said the twin students with natural ability are children of gods, and as plural of plural, that the orators, Isocrates, said the students with natural ability are children of gods. So you can see what he's doing, right? Yeah. It's what like is he saying doing? The, the cow jumped over the Later. moon, the cows jumped over the moons. The two mm -hmm. cows jumped over the one moon. It, it, it's you're teaching yeah, people yeah. how to do, how to use plurals in sentences. Yes, that's what it exactly. sounds like. Exactly, duals and plurals. Exactly. Now there really was an order, Isocrates. I mean, he was a historical character. I would hope that no one would think that Theon is teaching that it was okay if you were writing history to say there were twins and they were both orators and their names were Isocrates. Mm -hmm. Okay, obviously this is not teaching about how much factual flexibility we have in historical writing. And is it used that but, way in, in Lycona's work, that quote? For the singular and the plural, I'm sorry to say, yes, it is. Um, the, or the inflection inflection, the device of inflection, and uh, particularly inflection of number going from singular to plural. And then he references this section. He doesn't quote it, but he references okay. this section on inflection in Theon and says that it was a, 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 a literary device to change the number of people involved in a scene. Like if even if there was only one, that you could make it be two. Mm -hmm. Okay, 
uh, like change it, like adding people to the scene who weren't there. It's also, and what Dr. Lacona does is interpreted that way and used that way by Dr. Keener. Dr. Keener, in his recent book, uh, Christobiography, very recent book, uh, is is uh, talking about the fact that Matthew has uh, two demoniacs that are healed by Jesus. And Mark only mentions one. And this is kind of a well-known difference between them. And it, it definitely looks like the same event. Dr. Keener kind of takes Dr. Lacona's thing and runs with it and says, well, this could be the literary device of inflection of making it be two demoniacs instead of one. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So to my ears, it sounds like someone reading Dr. Seuss <laughs> who says one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish, and then thinking, see, Dr. Seuss is training his students that it's okay to change the number of fish when they tell stories. And it's like, well, it's- no, he's just He's just talking, you know, he's, you're, you're reading this to, to young people to teach them how to read and write. And these are older young people. They're not as young as those who are reading Dr. Seuss, but I'm afraid that's not an entirely bad analogy. Uh, some of them might not originally have spoken Greek. You know, you have to remember the Roman Empire spread across, you know, many uh, different language groups and so forth. But Greek was the high language. It was the language if you were going to be a rhetor or a writer, you were supposed to no Greek. Augustine complains about that. He, he hated learning Greek. I believe Latin was his original language. So uh, you'd be teaching these kids to use the different forms of the words, but you're not giving historical advice on how to write history. And we find this happening again and again. So there's a passage where uh, um, Theon uses, now this is what I think confuses people, like Dr. Lacona, he uses an historical passage as a uh, a kind of a a takeoff, a jumping off point for the exercise. Mm -hmm. So it's a passage from the historian Thucydides about the invasion of a town. And then he says, now uh, we vary the anecdote, the crea, the exercise, by having the student write it. You could write it all as a series of commands. Well, that would be what we would call the uh, the imperative mood, you know, come and, and defend your city, even though these people have broken through, da, 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 you do it as a series of commands. Or we could do it as a series of questions. And then he imagines writing like a frame story. I have often wanted to ask you, is it really true that this happened? Yes, it is, you know, and did this happen? So this is the what we call the interrogative, teaching them to write the interrogative. Okay, and then he says, um, and, and in these ways, we vary the crap. And Dr. Lacona uses that that passage, that passage, to say that you were allowed to like change the way things happened historically. Now, here's a thing right in that context that shows that that's not what Theon means. Theon says we may even have the student negate the entire passage, so the student would be practicing by writing, "This did not happen." And this did not happen. And this yeah. did not happen. And then Dan goes, and so on to the end. Yeah. Now that's obviously just nobody thinks that he's teaching them that if you become a historian, you read the the, the story of you know the, the killing of Caesar in the Forum, and then you go, Brutus did not stab him. This other guy did not stab him, and he did not fall with his toga over his head. Of yeah. course not. It's so these are not these are not variations. Then if if we're, if we're to be consistent, we're to say if you can negate the passage as a practice, then how can this practice be about how you record history? It's more about different moods and ways of talking about things. It's just like, 
practice writing writing things out as question and answer practice writing things out in negation practice writing things out in affirmations or whatever so <clears throat> yeah that think and, and and that to me was the surprise because i'd heard uh, personally i'm you know i'd heard dr lycona offer these things and i thought boy to me the gold is going to be when we look at those greek textbooks and we see if these writing things are really you know a normal thing if they're really training people to make the kinds of literary use the literary devices he's talking about and then that's a that's only part a part b is going to be to, to try to prove that the gospel writers are doing the same thing uh, because that's a whole different discussion but i was surprised mm -hmm. when i read that chapter and i thought is there more that i missed and uh, again we have the playlist below where dr lycona shares his stuff this is this is just about the facts of the matter and for me um i mean i'm not a scholar of any stripe but my habit is reading things in context. I mean, this is this is all I do is study stuff in context, and I carry that habit into those quotes. And I go, I don't know, I don't know if it means what you think it means here, you know. Mm -hmm, yeah. Mm -hmm. And we have an audience issue too, because um, I think sometimes we're a little anachronistic in thinking about the uh, the similarity of culture. So, like, you have movies based on true events right now in South Korea and in, uh, you know, poor people, rich people, people from all different countries and all different language backgrounds are familiar with that idea of a biopic. Children get it passed on to them just from their parents. Honey, it's just a movie. You know, it might not have really happened exactly that way, right? The mom will explain that to them when they go to the movie. Mm -hmm. It's a very widely understood thing. You don't have to go to school and study special exercise books to know that a movie might change the facts somewhat because we have what we call a common popular culture right across all different strata of society and, and so forth. That kind of homogeneity, as it's called, within culture is, is a pretty modern thing. It's a result of television and um, all these kinds of things. The Internet now um, was not something that you would find in in first century Palestine or first century Asia Minor or whatever, uh, where everybody would just understand all the same things. So we do have to ask ourselves, how would the audience, because remember we talked about this, this would be supposedly an understanding between the author and the audience, where the audience would say, I'm gonna suspend my expectations, I'm not gonna expect too much factuality, <clears throat> from these gospels because I recognize that they're in this genre of biography and they can change stuff. Why should we think that the, you know, that these are being read in the churches all over the Roman Empire and that the audience had, you know, read these textbooks or read, talked to somebody who'd read these textbooks and would just know, oh, all kinds of things could be changed here. Don't take that too seriously. That's yet another step. Um, okay, so I'm, I'm considering that maybe we should talk about the um, whether the gospel writers themselves would have had the, and the gospels, would have ha been tied to these sort of whatever the Greco-Roman biography practices were. Um, though you dispute that they even, these literary devices are even an established thing to start with, so that already, we'll, we'll set that aside. What do you see as a connection between, you know, the gospels and those, those, um, Greek trainings. Right, right. So we've got, got a couple different questions there too. So one is, would they have been exposed to them? And the second is, if they're exposed to them, would they use them? Because, you know, you can be taught something, hey, it's okay to do this, and then say, you know, I don't, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to do that. You know, I mean, someone could be taught how to make a biopic and could say, but I don't want to do that. I want to make a documentary instead, right? He could say, um, I, I've got a different motive 
my motive isn't to do this. My motive is to do something more, you know, more literally true. So we got a couple different questions there. So first, as far as exposure, um, we have this issue of who the gospel authors were. And this is where the question of authorship comes in. And it's been interesting to me that by and large, Dr. Lacona does claim to affirm traditional authorship, though he, he qualifies that in certain ways in his recent uh, video series. But, uh, you know, that in some sense of, of it, Matthew was written by Matthew and Mark was written by Mark and, and so forth. I think he just emphasizes well, the use of like secretaries or an amanuensis. Right. That and that's thing, right? what I, I mean about qualifying. And I'll yeah. get to that in a moment. But as far as the actual people, Luke would have been the only one where it would be plausible that he would have actually personally studied from such any any such textbooks. Luke writes the highest Greek in, in the New Testament, with the possible exception of the Greek of Hebrews. I actually think Luke might have written Hebrews too, but that's a different question. Yeah. question. But um, those are some of the, you know, the highest Greek. So he would have been fairly well trained uh, and plausibly could have studied from these textbooks. But uh, I definitely don't think we would have expected if Matthew was Matthew, Matthew the tax collector, that he would have studied from these textbooks. So would he have been exposed to that? Um, so then as you were just pointing out, I think you probably watched the maybe that particular video, Dr. Lacona's new theory, and as far as I know, this is original with him. I, I haven't seen this anywhere else, but is that they had a, a secretary who introduced these literary devices. Now, that's very surprising to me. Um, a secretary, or as it would be sometimes called an amanuensis, mm -hmm. was usually working on style. Even Richard Balcom who's not a you know super conservative scholar, you know, he talks about the use of secretaries because he's talking about the authorship of John. And he says, but using a secretary, you took responsibility still for what was in there. Mm -hmm. You might dictate it to a secretary and a secretary might, you know, make your style better, make you sound better or yeah. something. But the, the, the person who's attributed to be the author, he still takes responsibility for the content. Yeah. And so Dr. Lacona is imagining something that I would call a co-author. So I think we should use the word co-author just to begin with, to get away from uh, the word secretary, which I think sounds a little, a little more minimal. Because mm -hmm. um, so a secretary, about co we might think of them taking dictation. Um, and right, perhaps right. doing grammar changes here and there, like okay. right or stylistic changes or something like that. Mm -hmm. But uh, we're talking about a co-author here. And so then, what are we talking about? You know, so John. Uh, first of all, John's style is not the style of a highly written, uh, highly trained Greek secretary. Let's just start there. The very first place where you would expect the involvement of a secretary or an amanuensis would be on the style. So what we're supposedly envisaging is something very odd where this amanuensis keeps this rather rough Greek, very simplistic Greek style. It doesn't change what you'd expect him to change, but he changes the events. Yeah, so we have That's my really... thirst that on, you know, hypothetically is yeah, yeah, yeah. a literary device, um, yet the, the, the sort of the first task of the co-author, the reason why they're there, would be to clean up the Greek, make it more, mm -hmm. make it make it sound pretty. better, right? Make it prettier. Yeah, pretty. So your yeah. your thought is, if they're not doing, you know, the first job, they're probably not doing the second thing. And then, second of all, what are we imagining? 
you know, let's give this guy a name. We'll call him Apollos. Okay. Apollos says to John, hey, in my Greek class, I learned about uh, changing events. And I think it would be really cool to move the temple cleansing and add this thing about that. Maybe Jesus said I thirst, even though he didn't really. And John goes, well, yeah, you know, maybe my audience will, you know, be confused into thinking those things really happened. But but never mind. We want to be up with all this this new Greek stuff that you're learning in your Greek textbooks. Go for it, Apollos. I think that's highly implausible. I'm so, just going to say outright, yeah. it's a very complicated theory. So, it, so this this theory of um, literary devices seems to affect gospel authorship. And if you want to affirm traditional authorship, which I do, um, then it's gonna it's gonna probably require bringing in somebody else who was trained with the style and adding these things. And so it starts to feel. Um, we're requiring more and more adjustments to be able to support the theory. Like the theory is now driving our conclusions about authorship. That's and we how call it that sounds. ad hocness. Yeah. Philosophers call that being ad hoc. Mm -hmm. When like exactly what you just described, it's requiring more and more yeah. to support. And notice too that we lose something that we thought we gained from traditional authorship. I mean, we thought that if we established traditional authorship, what's one of the things we think we gained then? Factual accuracy, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. You're, you're getting, you know? yeah, you're getting closer to witnesses and, and better accuracy and all that, yeah. So we're taking away with the left hand what we're giving with the right. Mm -hmm. We're like, yay, yeah. traditional authorship, but actually that doesn't give you all that actual accuracy. Now, let, me, let accuracy. me throw something at you real quick. So in the terminology yeah. you're using, um, I know the objection on the other side, uh, again, from people I love and respect, is going to be, um, you know, Lydia, you're, you're, you're saying accuracy, but we're saying that you're using the wrong terminology. Like this isn't about accuracy. This is about understanding the, the conventions and the genre and all that. Um, do you want to speak for a second to that, that whole discussion? Cause it does even titling the video and writing the description. I realized everything I'm writing is contested by both sides, <laughs> you know, literary devices. You're like, no, those aren't really literary devices. And then I say fictionalizing literary devices. And they say, well, that's not really fictionalizing. That's the wrong word. Mm -hmm. Can you help us mm -hmm, mm -hmm. just, what's your yeah. perspective on that? Yeah. Um, so I want to be careful how I say this because I don't want to be offensive, but I said something that might help a little earlier in the video. So I'm going to go back to that. We're communicating with one another at this point. Mm -hmm. Okay. And we need to have a thesis on the table that we can say, this is the thesis and so-and-so says yes and so-and-so says no, okay? So take, take a word like accuracy. Um, when I communicate to you about when the temple cleansing took place and we go and we read the book of John and we say, okay, he's, he's saying there was a temple cleansing early in Jesus' ministry. Is that accurate or not? We know what we mean, right? We're talking English. We're both talking English. We both live in the same time period. We communicate with one another. What we mean by that is, you know, at this time, Did it happen when Jesus early said, on? you know, yeah. it happened early on, you know, right? We know what we're talking about. Now, at that point, we're just speaking clearly to one another. Even if it was a convention of the time to say you're allowed to displace events, that doesn't change the fact that in, in factual terms, it is correct to say, then that would be making the information inaccurate. Notice that this is the case even in our own time. All right, we do have, we do have fact-changing literary devices, okay? We actually have them. 
So you go to a, a movie and the movie appears to make this thing occur in 1924. And, you know, like it, it, they make it happen in 1924 in the movie. And it really didn't happen in real life until 1927. There is nothing insulting about saying that's inaccurate. That's not an insult. That's not uh, misrepresentation. That's not denying the, the literary device or the literary genre or the literary nature. It's like, yeah, it's the literary genre to put inaccurate information in and that that's okay because they thought it made a better story that yeah, way. We, we, so we all usually we're see doing, a disclaimer based on a true story that we see. Right, exactly. Sort of and, and, we, and we would say among ourselves, we'd say that's partially fictional. Right. And we, and we wouldn't mean to insult anybody by saying that. Yeah. And we wouldn't be making a category error. It's like, no, we'd actually be describing the category. So I intend these terms as descriptive. Then we can talk about the moral dimensions or whatever of them separately, or we can talk separately about whether they happen or not. But if we do not have a descriptive way of saying what we're talking about, we literally can't talk yeah. <laughs> we yeah. we literally can't even have a conversation so mm -hmm. for me to say they're putting inaccurate information in there that's not for me to you know deny the the literary device i do deny the literary device but mm -hmm. i'm actually just describing the literary device there yeah. i'm just if you, saying if you, you know, were that... to affirm the literary device you'd still use that terminology and i personally right, don't really right, have an objection right, right. to it although i i would want those of us who are like really staunch to just say look hype and this is maybe you would disagree and that's okay you can disagree with me all you want wouldn't be offended <laughs> um and you studied it way more than i have but um i would say that if these greek texts really do teach the things that like dr lycona says and if the gospel writers are using those same devices then i wouldn't call it i wouldn't want to call it lying i but i but i would use a term like um inaccurate or fictionalizing literary devices i, I would think that's actually accurate on the hypothesis I've been very careful about that. Yeah. And so I, I don't if have If you a watch if you if you watch when I do a presentation on this, you'll see me do exactly that. And like I've given I gave a presentation at the National Conference on Christian Apologetics just a week ago. I think it was a week ago yesterday on this very question and I had a slide were these deception? The very thing you just raised. Were these lying? Mm -hmm. And I said according to them they weren't lying just the way we would say a movie based on true events is not lying yeah. because it was allowed or accepted, but it would be potentially confusing. That's how I put it, that you could confuse people. People could be misled because why? Well, because they didn't have enough salt. <laughs> they yeah. didn't bring enough grains of salt, yeah. you know, just like I could be misled by watching a movie about what the facts were. So, no, I actually yeah. agree with you. I would say it's fine to say this is inaccurate information. If we want to say, is it lying? Then we have to ask a separate question about what the audience would have understood. Um, and, and here's an interesting point. I know some people who want to use what they call what I call a smorgasbord approach. Um, and uh, they want to say yeah, fine, I like the smorgasbord approach. The smorgasbord approach is, you know, you grab a couple of these, like maybe, I don't know, three, you know, for passages that you find difficult, okay? And then you say, and that's all, and I'm not going to affirm the rest of them. And then what I've said to those people is, well, now you do have a problem with lying. And here's why. Because if it's a, if it's a literary device of the time, you expect it more than just three times you expect more than just three of them 
when we go to a movie based on true events, we don't expect just one little thing to be changed. If it's only based on true events, we expect quite a lot of things to be changed. So if you're going to try to limit this to just one or two or three, then you're not talking about conventions that were common. But if you're not talking about conventions that were common, then how come the readers wouldn't have been deceived? Then how come this isn't deception? Mm -hmm. So it's like a dilemma. It's like a dilemma. Let me let me ask you this, uh, because I think it might help, is some of the stuff that uh, that I hear proclaimed when they talk about um, uh, obsessive, uh, obsessive of verba versus obsessive of vox, like is this a verbatim quote from Jesus or is it kind of like a paraphrase of Jesus? I'm totally open to that. Like I'm perfectly fine, and I think you are too, with, with the idea of a paraphrase. Um, Jesus says it here. It's recorded slightly differently there. But they're both true to what Jesus said. I don't think we need to worry about that. We see red letters, we see quote marks. This is this is this is actually more of a modern convention, and we don't want to project that backwards in thinking that we need verbatim agreement across the gospels. But this leads us to the issue of um, help us out by realizing there are a bunch of things that are being called, at least in their camp, literary devices, which you would affirm you just wouldn't call literary devices, right? Am, mm -hmm, am I right in mm -hmm. characterizing it that way? Could, could you tell us what are the things you would yeah. agree? This is this is there, this is usable, this is totally appropriate. I just wouldn't say that it makes your case for literary devices. Yeah, I think I think a chronological narration that we talked about before is a great example there. Mm -hmm. Okay, so if we have Luke gathering up Jesus' sayings about, um, about prayer in a chapter, or gathering up Jesus sayings about stumbling blocks or offenses in a in a, like a few verses or something and you know he said this he said that that's a chronological narration <clears throat> that doesn't make the case for <clears throat> uh dischronological narration or these factual changes mm -hmm. so i want to give an, an interesting example here um and this is again a just a, an erroneous interpretation in um in Christobiography by Dr. Keener, and this also comes up in his uh, his commentary on the Gospel of John, he cites the fact that St. Augustine said that the Gospel authors narrated as the Holy Spirit brought things to their minds, and that this might cause a different order of narration. Now, Dr. Keener cites this, and I think you see it if you go in context, to support dischronological narration. So like he's talking about the cursing of the fig tree and what order did that happen? Did it all happen? Did it wither at once or did it wither the next day? He talks about that in Christobiography. And he says, well, we need to just allow the authors their different agendas. And, you know, one of them has it wither immediately and one of them has it not withered till the next day. I'm, I'm paraphrasing Keener. And then he says, you know, ancient readers didn't think that you had to narrate everything in order. St. Augustine said that... Um, the authors narrated things as the Holy Ghost brought them to mind. Now, what impression would you get from that? You'd get the impression that Augustine, undeniably an ancient man, is endorsing dischronological narration. So I thought to myself, well, I wonder what Augustine what says in the context. So I go, I get that passage from Augustine uh, on his, from his Harmony of the Gospels, and it's just astounding to me. He does say that about um, as the Holy Spirit brought it to their mind, they narrated. But he's in that very same context, he says, if the order of the passage of, of the events differs, we must seek to harmonize them. But if no order is given, then 
we can just hold that they weren't, you know, really in conflict or, you know, mm -hmm. so in other words, you don't even have to bother to yeah. try to harmonize them if no order is given. What is Augustine doing? He's making the achronological, dischronological distinction. Mm -hmm. He's rejecting dischronological narration. Mm -hmm. Keener takes that statement about narrating as the Holy Spirit brought to mind. He apparently, I don't know if he just forgot the context or if it's that I'm afraid Keener doesn't make the achronological, dischronological yeah, distinction in his in his work, and then he he plugs in that quotation from Augustine as though it supports dischronological narration, which is like exactly the opposite of what Augustine is saying. Mm. This is very serious. This is a very serious problem in interpreting and applying that passage. Yeah, and that and that's the thing that I'm concerned about is we take things that are, you know, say a, a chronology or paraphrase, and those examples are given to build the case for literary devices. Uh, but, you know, we spoke over the phone, you said, or I guess it was on Skype earlier, you, you said, these are just normal harmonization devices, like, <laughs> they're being sort of co-opted as part of something that, they're like a launch pad, it's like a, a, a diving board that gets you into the pool, right? And the diving board is all these sort of known, obviously used things in the Gospels, like paraphrase, chronology and stuff, and then <laughs> the pool is what looks to modernize, like fabricating events putting things in people's mouths that were never there, people who never existed even in some cases. Um, and so that that's the pool that I'm concerned about, not the diving board. <laughs> right, and also we didn't need this new um, research for mm. the pool. Yeah. Right, I mean the diving board or whatever you want to call it, you know, that, that other stuff, that was there already, okay? It's in, it's in all the traditional, Gleason Archer and <clears throat> all those guys, mm -hmm. they were already doing that as harmonization and that doesn't mean that they agreed with Lacona, very much to the contrary. You know, if they use, they say, well, this is narrated topically in order or something, mm -hmm. then they're they're stopping there. They're just stopping there. And then this additional stuff, it, it goes so far beyond that. We didn't need to be like reminded of that. That stuff is already what we might call a staple mm -hmm. of evangelical harmonization. We had that already. So, you know, it's sort of like with, postmodernism to the extent that it's uh, new and different it's wrong to the extent that it's just saying something harmless like uh, people make mistakes or something it's not new and different so yeah. you know you kind of take yeah, kind of take your take your choice mm -hmm. now I want to say though that I have I have a positive case as well in the book and you know I definitely you know this is a big book you know, it's you can kind of see like how thick it is, right? And I, I definitely, I remember when I was writing it, somebody said nobody wants to read, you know, a 400-page, uh, I forget what word she used, you know, rant or something, you know, or a, a negative argument. And it, it's not yeah, okay, it's not. even though, mm -hmm. you know, it that is part of why it's so long because these claims are very involved. But I also have positive evidence for the reportage model and I often find that people are a little confused about that because they think well just talk about the positive evidence Lydia you know don't talk about this this other stuff and it's like but it's all very interwoven because if the gospel authors were reporting these details accurately then that gives us reason to think that they weren't changing the details mm -hmm. yes yeah, so let's let's do this this is we should talk about your positive case um, and and is to recognize this is I've I've heard people characterize your work as though it is purely a criticism, and that's actually not uh, that's not accurate. So there's please share with me what is your positive case for the reportage model or the idea that and how this positive case does it, you know itself present a challenge to the literary devices case. That's true, but right. what, what is your positive case? 
it, it's you know indirectly you know yeah so um and we can start with like my i had an earlier book called hidden in plain view undesigned coincidences in the gospels and acts so uh, people have seen tim's presentation my presentations on undesigned coincidences they're like these puzzle like fittings between the details super the interesting yeah i love them yeah. they're, they're very cool uh, i think so there are those and those often confirm details. And so I want to emphasize here, a lot of times the idea is, well, not, who cares about this? None of this matters because it's just details. So you take something like the green grass at the feeding of the 5,000. There's an undesigned coincidence about that, that John says it was Passover time. you know, And then Mark says the grass was green. And the grass isn't always green over there. But at Passover time, the grass is green. So they, you know, it's together. There's your puzzle fit, right? Um, and each one only mentions one half of it. Well, that's a detail, right? I mean, you could say, oh, well, the gist is that Jesus fed the 5,000. Who cares if he, if Mark made up the green grass? Well, for one thing, I care. <laughs> but for another thing, it's um, it's confirmed. Yeah. The detail is, in fact, it's in fact confirmed. Yeah. So we have so incidental. Like yeah, we have seemingly incidental, unnecessary details in one gospel that makes sense because of the information from a different gospel that doesn't and there seems to be no intention here no no intention to cause the two to make sense together and it's not just one example like green grass there's such a number of these that you you, you say this is what it looks like when two different people are talking about a real event yeah right and then there are many, many um, external confirmations. And one of the things I try to do is I try to talk about the character of the authors. We are so fortunate and blessed by God that we have evidence about the authorship of the Gospels. We talked about this earlier. Um, you know, and you can contrast that. There are even books in the Bible, like we don't know who wrote First Chronicles, for example. I mean, even as conservatives, we don't really know who the final guy was, you know, who wrote First Chronicles. But we have lots of traditional reason to believe that Luke wrote Luke, and specifically that the same guy wrote Luke and wrote Acts. So then you go do Acts. Sorry. You go me. do Acts. That's okay. The cat, the cat is great. I love it when the cat shows up. <laughs> I don't think anybody else saw the cat except you, because the one I'm sending you is, yeah, the four. Oh, my okay. cat sat here oh. for like five minutes. Yeah, <laughs> she was very fascinated by the conversation, yeah, right? Anyway, um, so you go to the the Book of Acts and you have all these external confirmations. And I did another talk at the National Conference on Christian Apologetics last week called Acts Gets Hard Things Right. I fitted in 12 of them. There were way more that I could have fitted in, little details of like geography and whatnot uh, in Acts. Well, that confirms Luke because it's the same person. So why then when we come over to Luke, are we saying, like Dr. Keener did this in a recent interview, well, maybe Luke um, made up that it was the right hand. You know, so that in, in one of the stories about the healing of the man with the withered hand, okay, um, only Luke says it was the right hand, okay? And Dr. Keener did an interview, uh, I believe the name of the, the uh, YouTube channel was Kinda Christian. I don't know if you're familiar with that YouTube channel. It's like a seeker's channel. And, um, you know, Sounds with the person, <laughs> the host, well, the, yeah, the host asked, he's a guy, 
pretty good interviewer. He asks yeah. what he calls, you know, tough questions about Christianity, but he's sure. not hostile, you know. And so they were talking about uh, differences in the Gospels. And Dr. Keener was talking about this genre idea. And so he said, uh, so an example would be that only Luke has that it was the man's right hand that was healed. And he said, now, maybe Luke had a different source. So he was open to that. But then he was, like, also open to it that maybe Luke just and that yeah. added so, that. so this strikes me as the concern i have which is that people just have proclivities where they without maybe clear justification just go yeah that part was not that part was made up by the author that part was or maybe historical we have no way of telling maybe who knows yeah right yeah. so like dr keener just said maybe he said we have no way of testing it that was the way he put it and it's like so we have to test like every separate little detail whereas yeah. my my approach to the reportage model my positive approach is that i try to learn something about the author the kind of author he was the kind of document he's writing okay and whether he would be likely to do that or not so i would say when we find all these things being confirmed externally then we can tell that Luke isn't that kind of author. And this is true within the Gospel of Luke, too. Like when yeah. he says, uh, in the, the reign of Tiberius Caesar, and this guy was the Tetrarch of Abilene, and Pontius Pilate was the governor. And like, you can yeah. go confirm. Now, people don't realize that these are these are really little details Luke gets right in, in Luke and Acts that are just, it's kind of astonishing because you couldn't back then go and do a bunch of research like online to find out what terms sailors used when they were talking about different issues or, or what time of year sailors traveled in certain places. But Luke just includes all these incidental details, which you're mm -hmm. saying, look, if, if he gets all these little details right, when he says the right hand, it's probably because Luke's just more, de cares more about detail than some other people do. So he includes which hand was healed. Or he heard about it. And yeah. maybe, you know, Mark didn't happen to hear it was the right hand. Maybe Luke talked to a different person mm -hmm. who said it was, you know, the right hand. So that's a kind of part of my positive case. It's this external confirmation. Another part of my positive case is the unity of character. So in uh, T-Mom, as I call it, the mirror or the mask, um, link below. Um, anyway, um, I do the character of Peter. So um, you probably heard a lot of sermons about the character of Peter um, and maybe preached some sermons on the character of Peter. That is apologetic value. It's really cool. We have all these different stories in different gospels about Peter, and they present this same very vivid person. And that's evidence for reportage for the reliability of them. Peter's the guy who rushes in first at the tomb. <clears throat> Peter's the guy who says, Lord, even though they all betray or, you know, deny you, I will never deny you. He's like mm -hmm. warm-hearted and impulsive. Um, <clears throat> Peter is the guy who says, um, let me come to you on the water yeah. right there. Out, you know, and he's, he's like, Lord, bid me come to you and so forth. And then he gets out there and, ah, you know, he's thinking, you know. Um, okay, that's his personality. And these are all different stories, but it's all clearly the same guy. So that's evidence. Now, in my forthcoming book, uh, my forthcoming book is to be called The Eye of the Beholder. Um, viewers, please follow me on Facebook and um, follow my YouTube channel and everything because I'll be announcing that. We hope that book will be available for sale in the spring of 2021. Uh, so the Eye of the Beholder, the Gospel of John is reportage. And the I heard spring was canceled for next year, though. I think we're just going to do winter from now on after this. So 
That's what I was told. And never Christmas? Never, always winter, always never winter. Christmas. Always winter, never. <laughs> Please, no, 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 no. We're going to have Christmas. We're going to have Easter. And Jesus is coming again. Anyway, but um, hopefully not before the eye of the beholder comes out, Lord. Um, anyway, so in that book, The Eye of the Beholder, I um, talk about the personality of Jesus, and that's obviously something people are really interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, in in a debate that he did with me on the Unbelievable Show, which is a British radio show, Dr. Craig Evans said that um, if we didn't know better, if we looked at John, uh, John's Jesus and the Jesus of the Synoptics, we'd have to wonder: Are they two different people? He actually said that, you know, that we have we have virtually nothing in the synoptic gospels that sounds like Jesus and John, except for a few verses in Matthew, he said. So, like, I refute that whole thing in in the eye of the beholder by showing many different sayings of Jesus. Like, for example, he says, um, ask and and you shall receive, you know, and then he says uh, in hitherto, you've asked nothing, you know. Asking you, asking you will receive. So, in other words, but these are different. These are different occasions. So we do find him actually talking the same mm-hmm. often, actually. So um, that's evidence. That's part of the positive case. Uh, another part of the positive case is um, unexplained allusions. So this is this is something I really love. Here's one from John. In John seven, Jesus says. Um, that if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. And then he says, as the scripture says, out of his innermost being shall come rivers of living water. And we cannot figure out what scripture he was talking about. It's it's amazing. If John felt free, as many scholars, including some evangelical scholars, think he did, to embellish and elaborate Jesus' words and kind of put interpretations into Jesus' mouth because he was inspired by the Holy Ghost. Um, why would he put into Jesus' mouth an allusion to a scripture passage and nobody could figure out what scripture passage is? Like, he didn't need to do that. He didn't need to put that as the scripture says part mm-hmm. in there at all. So, and Leon Morris, the late Johannine scholar, late great uh, New Testament scholar has pointed this out, that that's very strong evidence that John is re- recording historically what the historical Jesus mm-hmm. actually said. So those are unexplained allusions. Uh, you mentioned unnecessary details. We find a lot of these even when they're not confirmed by um, undesigned coincidences. So, for example, Mark says when Jesus was asleep in the boat, his head was on a cushion. He just adds that little thing. Or when they found the um, when they found the colt. He was tied outside in the street at the, I believe he says at the corner or something like that. So he's got this like specific place where they found the colt tied. Mm -hmm. There's no need to add those. Now you could say, oh, well, you know, that was just to make it look real. One thing we need to know is there was no realistic fiction at the time. There was fiction, Mm -hmm. but there wasn't realistic fiction. Where they tried to present it like it was historical. Super historical, like super, um, what word should I say, detailed, with a lot of what we would call verisimilitude, where you could read it and you're like, wow, you know, I can't tell, you know, if that didn't say a novel right on the front cover, I'd never know. It was, it, it just wasn't like that. I mean, that wasn't invented for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later. So, and yet we have these realistic details that add verisimilitude to to the Gospels. So that's just a sample of, yeah. of the things that I have in my positive case. That's great. And, <clears throat> all right, well, um, 
I don't know what else you have that you want to share. Um, you've referenced your books. You've given us a ton of great information. But is there something else you want to share before we wrap this up? I think I'd like to give just a couple more examples of the of the literary devices, maybe, um, just to kind of see. And I'm not going to go on and on about each of them, but I think this will just be to show where this you know where this goes or what these examples are. So, we've talked about the I am sayings. Um, here's one: the idea of a doublet healing in Matthew. So uh, Matthew has two blind men that are healed in Jericho. Matthew also has two blind men that are healed earlier, I believe it's in chapter nine. So uh, in his commentary on Matthew, Dr. Keener theorizes that um, this in chapter nine is a doublet. So what's a doublet? A doublet is when you have two events in the same gospel that look a lot the same, but there was really only one. And you could think of it as like the gospel author ran it through a, a photocopying machine, and then he made some changes, right? And then he ran it through the scanner, and then he has like what looks like a, a separate event. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's a doublet. A doublet healing in Matthew. And um, he seems to allude to that again in Christobiography, though not quite as explicitly, but it's it's quite explicit uh, in uh, his commentary on Matthew and Dr. Lacona raises that possibility in why are there differences. He doesn't commit to it, but he raises it as, hey, maybe this is something. All right. Um, here's one. John or Matthew relocating the appearance to Mary Magdalene after Jesus' resurrection. So in, uh, in John, of course, we have that whole scene, right, where Mary Magdalene sees Jesus and she thinks he's the gardener. You know, you're familiar with that scene. In Matthew, it says she came with the other Mary to the tomb, and then it just starts going, they, 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 the women, they, you know, and they see the angel, and then they run to tell the disciples, and then they see Jesus. Very different circumstances. So if you insist that Mary is with, um, with the other women the whole way in Matthew, then this would be a contradiction, right? Because in in the in the Matthew one, then she would be seeing Jesus when she's with other women. In John, she's alone. In the Matthew one, she would be um, seeing Jesus when she's already happy and she already knows that he's risen because the angels told her and she believed them because it says they run with great joy. In John, she's sad. She mm -hmm. she thinks he's still dead. Okay, etc. I mean, it's they're just completely different scenes. Now, I don't think there's any contradiction here. I think she left the group. I think that. Um, Matthew either just didn't know, and so he just left it out. Uh, you know, he doesn't say that Mary Magdalene was with the group. He just doesn't say she, either way, you know. Um, and that John then maybe talked to her and knew more details about how she came back later and saw Jesus. So this is what we call reconcilable variation, yeah. which is actually another form of uh, evidence for the text, that we have these differences, but that they're reconcilable in a way that's not implausible. Yeah. Um, and I mean, in my view, it would be the same as yours on that. When I looked at that stuff and I did a video on a long time ago, it's like, I don't, it's an overly wooden view, in my opinion, that, but that tries to get the authors to say more than they're saying, that turns, mm -hmm. turns differences into discrepancies of a different kind, yeah. Amen. <laughs> Say it again. Man. No, that's absolutely true. And I, um, I often talk about this as like a still shot versus a videotape. So real life is a video videotape. 
Mary Magdalene is with the other women, but we don't take a still shot of her with the other women and like, okay, it's a group group selfie. Now she's going to stay with them the whole time. No, it's it's video. She can leave and she can run, yeah. you know, somewhere else back to the back to Peter and John. So, okay, um, Dr. Lacona believes it is a discrepancy. And he's very explicit about this and why are there differences that, you know, just yeah. doesn't, he doesn't like any of those harmonizations there of that. So he says either, either Matthew or John has relocated the appearance. Now you might just think of this as, you know, like 500 feet to the right or something, but the relocating, when you stop to think what that means, that would mean creating completely different uh, circumstances. Mm -hmm. yeah, so it's, like it's if John relocated, relocating. Yeah, it's not, yeah, a, it's not just a time difference. It's a lot more than that. Well, even a little space difference. Yeah. Like, it's like it was down the road where she had that conversation with Jesus or something, but it was the same conversation. No, it would be like if John, quote, relocated it, and it really happened like in Matthew, it would be a, a made-up scene, essentially. So that would be an example. All right. Um, Luke allegedly moving the appearance to Jerusalem when the first appearance to the male group of disciples um and so this would be like everybody except judas who had hung himself and thomas okay and that that dr lacona said in a debate with uh bart Ehrman that it really took place in uh galilee and that luke moved it to jerusalem now that's kind of that's a big difference again galilee and jerusalem are like not right next door to one another yeah. the yeah. circumstances would also be quite different because like in galilee they expect to see him in in matthew they go there with the intention of meeting him they've been told go and meet him mm -hmm. in the story in luke they're in they're in the room they've got the doors locked they're musing on what's been happening that day it's been this amazing day it's that same day and suddenly jesus is among them quite unexpectedly so it's very different yeah. uh, circumstances so that's another one that luke supposedly moved it so then he would have had yeah. to change the circumstances and these quite are the a lot. things that I'll... raise my eyebrows as well and i say it's a, it just makes a lot more sense if you just let the stories read next to each other and not and not say that i don't i don't understand the appeal uh to be completely honest and mm -hmm. yeah it's a good example yeah. And each of these examples that I've just given would involve eliminating a resurrection appearance. If you think about it, you're going to have fewer resurrection appearances. Because if you take Matthew and John to be describing different things, okay, then you've got the appearance to the other women, and that's separate from the appearance to Mary Magdalene. Mm -hmm. Whereas if it's that one or the other relocated, then you've got at most one appearance to the women. Uh, or if, you know, Matthew's describing one meeting in Galilee and Luke is describing an earlier meeting in Jerusalem, that's two appearances. And if you say that Luke moved it, then you've just eliminated a separate resurrection appearance. So there's that. It also makes it hard to fit in Doubting Thomas, because if you think about it, John locates the Doubting Thomas sequence firmly in Jerusalem, that he wasn't with them. Then a week later, Jesus appears to them a second time. So, like, if the first appearance occurred in Galilee, did Doubting Thomas walk to Galilee? I, I, I just don't picture that. Hey, yeah. Thomas, you know, come to Galilee, you know, just because. All right. So then we've got another one. Um, and I'll, this is the last one I'll give tonight. But um, Dr. Lacona thinks that when Jesus breathes on his disciples— so you may remember that's in John 20. He appears and he breathes and he says, receive the Holy Ghost. So there's been all this controversy, like, 
oh, did they receive the Holy Ghost more than once or what? Because there's Pentecost. And so there, what is that? That's a theological debate, right? And one of the points I've been making is we need to separate our theological debates on and our historical debates, right? If Jesus did historically stand in front of him and go, receive the Holy Ghost, then we can argue about what the theological meaning of that was, but it was an event that occurred historically in space and time. We shouldn't take our idea, well, Jesus wouldn't have given them the Holy Ghost more than once, so I guess this didn't really happen yeah. or something. Okay, yeah. so um, now this isn't original with Dr. Lacona. Um, other scholars, I would say not usually considered to be highly conservative scholars, but um, other scholars have have thought this, that um, John invented this as a kind of odd allusion to Pentecost. Now, I don't think it looks like an allusion to Pentecost at yeah. all. I mean, there's no yeah. little tongues of fire. There's no mighty rushing wind. Yeah. You know, like, I think it would have just confused people like crazy. But so that's another one. Um, so when you hear sometimes, I guess this is what I want to emphasize. They got the gist. They got the big picture. It, it, they didn't invent incidents. I, I would suggest that people would think about some of these examples because what we have to be doing at that point is redefining gist, invent, and incidents, <laughs> all of them, because I would definitely call some of those inventing incidents. And if those are examples, then we at least need to be clear about what we're talking about. And so what I would urge uh, as uh, in wrapping up is that people would like really examine this issue because I think a lot of times people say this isn't important so it's like who cares you know they got the big picture right they got the gist right these are only tiny little details so it doesn't matter and gosh it would take a lot of time and gee Lydia's book is big and you know I don't want to read this and and I, un I totally understand that that's why I've made in multiple venues you know I've done like videos I've done um I've done blog series. I've done discussions like this one with you. So whatever format people feel most comfortable with, they can take that format and use it to kind of get an entrance into the issue. But what I would say is don't accept this because you think like it doesn't matter. It's unimportant. I, I think, think that what's happening, if you ask me my yeah. honest opinion, and I know a lot of apologists and have had conversations even about this, but I think that mm -hmm. maybe what's happening is uh, apologists um, have more than one agenda uh, when it comes to the, all these topics. They're thinking not only about what is the case, they're also thinking about what is my case? What the, What's the case mm -hmm. I'm going to present to others? And if you could mm -hmm. take all of the challenges of discrepancies and issues in the Gospels and you don't have to work at harmonizing each one anymore, that's very, it makes your job easier as an apologist, right? Because you, you just say, look, harmonizing is not, not necessary because there's such a flexibility in the authorship that I don't even have to argue. And, and I mean, don't even have to deal with whether this passage is consistent with that passage or not. And I think harmonizing is extremely successful. I just think it's also tedious and it ends up derailing conversations you're having where people are like, what about this passage? And then you go into it. It's just an easy and useful thing to say literary devices and then move on. And so I think that that makes it appealing to apologists. But I think that apologists ought to recognize that um, that that's not a good enough reason to affirm this thing, right? We, we, need, to, we need to dig deeper into it. Yeah. Well, and I think one thing you can see from the examples, that's part of why I gave this list, is the apologetic implications mm -hmm. 
of these examples, yeah. the apologetic implications of, of this, because suppose you want to argue for Jesus' physical resurrection, and you start saying, um, okay, Luke moved that, then I think it's quite understandable to ask, did Jesus really eat fish with the, with the uh, disciples, mm-hmm. right? Well, is that not part of our case? Yeah. For Jesus' physical resurrection, the physicality that didn't make is it about the up. details. The, yeah. phys- the physicality is about the details. So we get that. Um, doubting Thomas, okay? Um, apologists use doubting Thomas. They'll say Jesus appeared to skeptics, right? Well, but if we say Luke moved that, and then there was no room for the doubting Thomas incident, we can't fit yeah. it in anymore. Mm-hmm. Now we've lost our ability to say Jesus appeared to skeptics. So I think we start, or if we want to defend the deity of Christ, we want to talk, do cult, uh, cult apologetics, like apologetics with uh, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, etc. And we want to say, no, Jesus really said, I and the Father are one. You know, at least he might have said it in Aramaic, you know, but if you'd been there, you would have heard him say that, or before Abraham was, I am. And then you get somebody, you know, who says, but wait a minute, but, you know, Craig Evans says that's Jesus looking like an allegorical figure of Lady Wisdom. And he agreed with Bart Ehrman that he didn't say those things like they're recorded and so forth. Uh, okay, suppose your Jehovah's Witness friend you're talking to has actually gone and done that research and found that out. And he's like, and by the way, Craig Evans is a, a evangelical scholar, and even he doesn't believe, you know, even evangelical scholars believe that John did this. Now you've just had the rug pulled out from under you to some extent in the data that you have available to you to use in uh, in discussing. So there are definitely very, very significant apologetics implications of all of this, as well as to our Christian life and our Christian practice and our counseling and all that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And it just, it just seems like a formula for reading the Gospels wrong. And I mean, why on earth would I say that this Thomas thing happens somewhere else? Like, what, what is what presuppositions am I bringing to the text? that are causing these things, but this is not new. And in your, in your, in your book on the gospel, John, I'm sure you'll deal with this, but scholars, even Christian scholars have in some cases been prone to invent wild things about the, the mind of John as he's writing different things in the past. And you're like, this isn't how you should approach an, any ancient text, let alone inspired scripture, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. So, all right, well, we, we've, I think we've had a productive time. I know there's been a long video, but I think that that's exactly what kind of a lot of people want. They wanted a little introduction to the topic, but also a lot of details from you. So thank you so much, Lydia, for coming and for joining me. And you guys can follow her. I have links for her content down below. You can follow her stuff. And uh, if you'd like to get more de- details, I, again, don't know the answers to all these questions. It's obvious that I lean uh, away from the literary devices thing not the sort of stuff we'd all accept but how it's being used mm-hmm. the final conclusion i go hey hold on i i don't i don't think we can go there um that is my current opinion on the topic and i thought it was worth mm-hmm. talking about i don't have enough time to make this a research project so i decided to bring someone on to discuss it and i hope it was fruitful other than that i will see you guys on friday at 1 p.m that's when i have my q a monday i'm dealing with the mirror bible translation next wednesday i have neil shenvey to talk about critical race theory and then Friday again with the Q&A, because why should I sleep? <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Mike. Yep. Have a good one. Take care.